0: This episode is brought to you by Squarespace the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website portfolio and online store for a free trial and 10% off visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code less dumb at checkout a better web starts with your website this episode is also brought to you by the great courses who believes that learning doesn't stop after you finish school Offering engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors and experts who are passionate and knowledgeable, making the topics that they explain fascinating and wonderful. With more than 500 courses on many subjects, including science, history, literature, music, and more. Available as DVDs, audio CDs, or streaming online to any device. For a limited time, listeners of you are not so smart can get 80% off behavioral economics when psychology and economics collide. Just go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. <laughs> Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, Episode 33.
1: Through the ages, the mystery of the pyramid has inspired many theories. Among them the idea that the pyramid is Earth base one, remnant of the colonization of Earth by extraterrestrials. Others liken the pyramid.
0: That is the voice of Leonard Nimoy. And he was the original Spock, but he also hosted In Search of, a show in the late 70s and early eighties, which was part of this. Fascination. I mean, you think people are fascinated now with Stonehenge and psychic powers and UFOs and Bigfoot? Man, in the '70s and '80s, people were really, really interested in this stuff. And this was one of the shows that was uh, riding that wave of popularity. There was also this commercial that ran at the time period. Uh, and if you grew up at that during that period of time, you remember this commercial because it ran pretty much every fifteen minutes for ten full years.
1: Mysteries of the Unknown goes deeper into unexplained phenomena than ever before. It documents the facts, and it covers what people were never willing to talk about. Stonehenge. A visitor fashions a wire antenna in the shape of an ancient Egyptian symbol. He points it at the stones, and a surge of power rushes into his arm, knocking him unconscious. Was it all in his mind, or was it much more than that? To experience Mysteries of the Unknown... Examine your first volume, Mystic
0: Places. Ah, uh, yes, history. the Time Life Mysteries right. of the Unknown Get a Book Every Other Month series. It really creeped everyone out during the time period. And this commercial ran all the way up into the 90s. And the later commercials would have a guy reading the book, like in a coffee shop. And somebody would come up and say, Hey, what are you reading? And he would look at them and go, I'm reading about the Bermuda Triangle. Do you know what happened in the Bermuda Triangle in 1974? And they would say, uh, What? And he would say, Read the book. He had the commercial ran so long that people were saying things like read the book in like political speeches and stuff. So all of this stuff, these shows that were very popular during the 70s and 80s and a little bit into the 90s were all about these mysterious things in the world. These mysteries that could not be solved, these enigmas that baffled experts and uh, they culminated really in the granddaddy, the, the master of them all. The one with the creepiest intro music of all the creepy intro musics ever, this one. Unsolved mysteries. That's right. Mysteries that are still mysteries and thus are unsolved. It was a show that was so so creepy with Robert Stack would come out of a alleyway and scare you like you were like you were trying to walk home and he caught you, he was like, Hello, let me tell you about something and just It was the scariest show on television. I could not wait to watch it every week, whether they were talking about someone being abducted in their sleep by the big black eyed aliens, or they were trying to explain how somebody could go missing, or they were talking about so often the, the favorite topic of all of these programs, all of these books, all of this stuff, the pyramids, the ancient Egyptians. And the reason that most of these shows focused on, um, the ancient Egyptians was because of a book written around that time period when all this started chariots of the gods question mark by Eric von Daniken, uh, a book that came out in 1968 that has sold millions upon millions of copies. And, uh, they made a documentary about it. He still appears on shows like ancient aliens. And this show that I was talking about in the beginning with Leonard Nimoy, it was sort of a spinoff of a TV special called In Search of Ancient Astronauts. And that came out in 1973. And then it became In Search of Other Things. And eventually Leonard Nimoy became part of the show. And it just had all these seasons of mysterious things. It was a predecessor to Unsolved Mysteries and other shows like it. Now, these shows aren't as popular as they used to be. But there is one thing about these shows and about this movement that is still very popular today. So popular there's even even an internet meme about it. It all comes from this show. Mysterious structures located all over the world. It's as if all these ancient builders went to the same school. Magnificent monuments
2: emitting powerful energy. When you go inside it, you have the feeling like you are in the hands of an extraordinary intelligence.
1: Did ancient man build the pyramids as burial chambers?
2: You know, if you want to build the tomb fair enough, why use two and a half million blocks of stones? Or
0: did they serve another, much more profound purpose? You have to think that whoever is guiding such a precise network of pyramids must have been a very advanced culture, probably extraterrestrials. Yes, probably extraterrestrials. There's just no other explanation. Now, I can make fun of that now, but... I have to confess that when I was young, actually up until I was a teenager, I really did think that maybe aliens built the pyramids. I bet a lot of you did too. At least uh, if we didn't believe that the aliens built the pyramids, we thought that it was a reasonable explanation among many explanations. And I just did not know at the time of something called the argument from ignorance. So I, d- I didn't know at the time anything. I just uh, I just believed what all these people were telling me. We had a house that had these shows playing in it. My parents liked them. Uh, the book, um, the chariots of the gods was in that house and my dad had read it. I read it. We just simply didn't have any sort of skepticism in our hearts when it came to this possibility, because we thought of the Egyptians and them and the pyramids as mysterious as enigmas as unknowable. And that's what really drives all of this stuff. And it all comes from this logical fallacy called the argument from ignorance. This is a logical fallacy in that it's sort of when someone is trying to explain how something may have occurred or the uh, the way something works, and they can't prove. They tell you you can't prove what they're saying wrong, then it makes it sound as if it might be a reasonable explanation. So if I say, "What is that light in the sky?" and you say, "Could be aliens," and I say, "I don't think it's aliens," and you say, "Can you prove it's not aliens?" and then I say, "No," then they're like, "Well, there we go." That's a logical fallacy. It's like saying. Uh, Hey, my toaster doesn't work anymore. And someone says, I bet it's because a clown broke into your apartment and poured Kool-Aid in it. And you say, I don't think that's what happened. And they say, can you prove it's not true? Yeah. See, that is a logical fallacy, obviously. And that's sort of what drives all these programs is this, um, the fact that we can't explain everything in 100% detail means it's open to other explanations. And the one that I think that really has taken hold and won't let go is that Maybe aliens built the pyramids. It's certainly something that I used to believe when I was a kid. And I've always wanted to just ask this question of an expert. Hey, expert, did aliens build the pyramids?
3: <laughs> no, absolutely not.
0: Well, that settles that. We uh, we don't have to make shows about aliens and pyramids anymore, except of course we will, because over the last 30 years, any one of these Programs, any one of these shows or books or anything made by anyone that has to do with these mysteries of the ancient Egyptians could have easily asked one of the thousands of people who study this thing, people like this.
3: I'm Margaret Maitland, and I'm an Egyptologist. Um, so basically, an Egyptologist is, is someone who studies the culture and history of ancient Egypt, um, whether it's through uh, archaeology, actually, um digging um, in Egypt or um, studying artifacts or reading ancient texts written in hieroglyphs and all of that.
0: So Maitland told me that it is crazy to her and to all the other Egyptologists and archaeologists and people out there who are right now in the desert digging around and know a lot about this topic. It's crazy to them that Ancient Aliens is a show that's on TV. It's crazy to them that there are so many people who still believe this and it's been around for so long because there's just so much evidence that explains exactly how these things were built. It's not a great mystery.
3: We have a lot of evidence that, that shows it was the ancient Egyptians, whether it's, um, you know, the the sort of tools and um, things that have been found, stuffed down between pyramid blocks, um, to um, graffiti that the workers who... who um, you know, we're actually moving the blocks left on on uh, the blocks. The, the, they they were organized in teams, and they had great names like uh, the Drunken Friends of Menkaure um, and things like that. Um, and we've got the the roads, the the towns that people were living in who built the pyramids. We've we've just got a lot of evidence that shows that it was ancient Egyptians.
0: So, like I said, I, I have always wanted have the opportunity to talk to an Egyptologist about this sort of thing. And Margaret Maitland has a PhD in Egyptology from the University of Oxford. She's been studying this for many years. She's collaborated with many other experts in this topic. And I just sort of ran through the things that you hear and see and read on those mysterious programs and in kooky blogs and stuff and had her sort of knock them out one by one. First of all, weren't these people too primitive to build something as amazing and as complicated and as difficult to create as the Great Pyramids?
3: When we're talking about ancient Egypt, we're not talking about early hominids who lived millions of years ago. Um, It's just a few millennia, like kind of a blip in in human history and our, our brains haven't really evolved that much. Um, you know, the ancient Egyptians were just as clever in terms of their you know, mental capabilities as people today. Um, you know, of course, they didn't have the same technology, um, but they had lots of skills that, that, you know, we might not have maintained today, like, you know, the kind of stone working um skills that um a large percentage of people would have had that that just you know aren't useful to us today so um and you know they had been developing um those skills for some time um building other sort of large monuments before um the pyramids and um you know as part of their their um, uh, religion as well. Priests were involved in, in stargazing and, and astronomy, and, and we, we know that they were developing mathematics and things like that. So, um, you know, they weren't <laughs> they weren't so primitive as as we might think they were.
0: Maitland also says that a lot of people think that these people, though they may maybe they weren't primitive like ancient hominids, but surely. They couldn't have built the pyramids with the tools of the era you know they didn't have laser beams and cranes, but again, she says that's just 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 a misconception
3: um, yeah no the uh, we've done experiments even in modern times trying to use these ancient techniques and they 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 can work um you know it's not it's not um, easy, but when you've got um, sort of workforces of of 20-30,000 people who you can call up through through conscription so it's it's not it's not slaves either people assume make that assumption as well um, they were called up you know just like you know during war you might uh, use conscription to call up soldiers you could call up workers in that way um, and um, you know the the Copper tools can, can cut um, limestone. It's one of the sort of softer stones and even even sort of granite blocks which are used in some places in some of the pyramids that can be cut using um, other hard stone um, hammer, hammer stones. Um, and you know we've got examples of the wooden sledges and, and um, sort of sliders like wooden beams. That they would have wet and and used to sort of slide these sledges along. Um, we've got actual examples of of those, so we know that they that's how they could have been um, moving these these blocks and um, even the sort of measurement tools and stuff like that. You know, if we we we've got um, a sort of understanding of those.
0: I asked Maitland about. Where the Egyptians got all those rocks and she explained that the pyramids were built on bedrock and the quarries are even nearby. I asked her about how the workforce was fed and watered and sheltered and and where all the waste went and she explained they lived in a civilization. It was complex and it lived along the Nile where the pyramids sit, not in the middle of a barren desert as they are so often depicted. She also told me that even though people say this all the time, we couldn't build a pyramid, even with today's technology, that that's ridiculous. Of course we could. We could build a pyramid using today's technology. If we wanted to spend the time, money, effort and put that many people to work on the project, yes, we could do it. We've built things that are much more complicated since then, and we can build things that the Egyptians could never even hope to build. So no, modern technology is very able to build a pyramid like the ones you see in Giza. She also explained the Egyptians aren't some lost culture who mysteriously disappeared. The history of how they went from pyramids to hieroglyphs to Arab states and modern cities is well understood, very similar to how we understand the progress from ancient Greeks to modern Greeks. In fact, that's a great comparison because we don't see the Parthenon and the culture of the Greeks as some sort of enigma that allows for weird ideas like the influence of aliens from other planets, even though they are also an ancient culture who also did amazing things. But the Greeks were a huge influence on the Renaissance, and they inspired the architecture of the early United States and our monuments. So we don't think weird things about the Greeks because, well, we just aren't as ignorant concerning them. And maybe the question that's probably the most bizarre to an Egyptologist is, why would the Egyptians spend so much time and effort building a gigantic tomb for one person or for a a royal family or whatever? And it seems so strange because look at how we build things like cathedrals, like Westminster Abbey and things like that, where we bury people who are important to us and where we engage in rituals and where we put strangely enough, sometimes we bury just the organs of people or we put up prayers on the walls that could be looked at from another culture as incantations or spells. It just seems weird because we're unfamiliar with it. And if you're someone who lives in a Western culture, you probably don't have much familiarity with Egyptians and the ancient Egyptians seem mysterious and spooky and, and they're an enigma, but they're really not.
3: Yeah, I always think it's it's kind of... Um misleading that the media just buys into every time someone has a press release that says, I've solved how the pyramids were built. They just they just go ahead and publish basically someone's press release, um, even if they have no sort of experience in Egyptology. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, I think Egypt has a lot of uh, appeal for people and um, it is partially because it's seen as something mysterious. Um, I think that goes right back to um, ancient Roman times. Like the the, at that point in time, even then, they thought. Um, you know, the pyramids in ancient Egyptian culture was really old and mysterious, so it's it's not a new thing. And um, I think a lot of people would prefer to keep things unknown um, and not understand them. It's it's a lot easier to romanticize things that way. Um, I think it sort of discredits humanity that we think that we couldn't have done these great achievements. Um I think it's a shame that the ancient Egyptians aren't given their dues, um, and yeah, that that people don't sort of want to seem to want to take the trouble to to find out more. The um, you know, for example, hieroglyphs, people just think that they're um, you know mysterious symbols, and in fact, you know, they've got you know f- funny or angry letters written between people that you could read, where someone's telling off their son or or you know, fairy tales and poetry, um songs written down about, you know, seizing the day and enjoying life. Uh, it's really incredible um, what we can actually even read um in their own words that they've they've left for us to to better understand uh, their culture. So yeah, it is it is a bit frustrating that people seem to not want to know if you want
0: to read more from Margaret Maitland, you can find her blog at eloquentpeasant.com and you can also follow her on Twitter at eloquentpeasant. And here's the thing, the Egyptians they believed all these things that seem strange to us, and then we believe all these things that seem strange about the Egyptians beliefs that were easily cleared up and and done away with just by asking an expert who was easy to find. And and this expert Margaret Maitland is among many experts who are very willing, a very eager to educate the public, to let us know what the truth is behind this common misconception, this misconception that drives television shows that make lots of money that appear on television in front of millions of people. It seems so odd to want to keep this mystery going when the truth is right there. And it seems to me that this is similar to like climate change and global warming when you can talk to climatologists and appeal to a consensus, or you can believe what this other side has to say about the topic. And these people aren't experts. Or you might wonder, how old is the earth? And here you have someone who tells you, well, we have precise instruments that tell us it's so many years old, billions of years old. And you have another group of people who say, no, I think it's 6,000 years old. How do we decide what to believe in? Where do we decide Is the best place to place our doubt and how do we go about doing it? What is the psychology behind belief? And why don't facts just work on people? When we have a preponderance of evidence, why don't people just look at that mountain of evidence and say, oh, well, that's probably it? For instance, when you were listening to Margaret Maitland, and if you had some sort of misconception that is now cleared up, do you want to completely ignore what she had to say and discount it? Are you willing now to? Alter your beliefs and adjust your idea of how the world works to match what the experts have to say. If you're willing to change what you believe about the pyramids, why aren't you willing to change what you believe about maybe something else that you find a bit more sacred? How do we decide when it's time to do that? How do we manage our belief? Well, that is the question we're going to try to answer today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McRaney and I will be your host. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we pick another topic in the realm of self-delusion and then we seek out an expert or experts on that topic and try to come to an understanding, try to become less dumb about that topic. This episode, we're talking about belief itself. And some of the experts we're going to talk to are Jim Alcock, we just talked to Margaret Maitland, and the main interview today is going to be Will Storr, who wrote a fantastic book called The Unpersuadables, which is uh, his adventures with the enemies of science, as he says in the subtitle of the book. So, I, uh, I before this episode started up, before I, I was I was getting ready to, to pick the people who I wanted to talk to, I uh, asked you, what are some things that you used to believe in? I used to believe in uh, maybe ancient aliens had something to do with the pyramids, but I also used to believe that... Um, the hoverboards were real because Robert Zemeckis said in an interview when I was a kid that the hoverboards in Back to the Future 2 were not props, but they were real. And I had no reason to think that he would lie to me. And for years, I thought that I was going to eventually have a hoverboard. And if you go online and look at hoverboards, it looks like he fooled a lot of kids, a lot of naive kids who no longer believe what we used to believe. So I asked you on Facebook, what are some things that you used to believe as a child or as a young person that you were later disappointed or embarrassed to learn uh, were not real? What are some things that you believe that you later found out were not real? And uh, you, lots lots of answers here. More than 100 people chimed in. You can read all of them at facebook.com slash you are not so smart. Uh, Leanne Fleetwood, she said that she used to believe that when she turned off the TV, the people on the program just stopped what they were doing and waited for her to come back and finish the show. So she thought they were just hanging out, chit-chatting, etc., until they heard the click of the on button and sprang back to life. That's pretty fantastic. Daniel Clayton, he says that he used to believe in x-ray glasses. Then he writes, I don't think I need to elaborate. No, you don't, Daniel. I understand exactly what you were thinking. I also thought that those were real. You'd see them in the back of comic books. And they didn't say anything like it's an effect. They just said, no, you will be able to see through hands to see the bones. And then of course, see through clothes to see what's underneath. And, um, but really all they did was give you kind of a double vision so that you saw your hand inside your hand and it kind of looked like you were seeing bones, man. What a jip, huh? Shalini Prasad writes, when I watched the old black and white movies, I believed the world was without color for hundreds of years. Um, when I found out the truth, boy, was that embarrassing. That is so great. I love it. Mark Mifsud said that, uh, he used to believe that space travel had already happened and he didn't learn until he got older that we haven't gone past the moon with human beings. And, uh, and it's actually very difficult to travel in space and it's very challenging. And, uh, it was a big disappointment for him as well to to realize that uh, he believed that, that that something was true just based off of the uh, science fiction. He didn't know that we actually had not done it. That's a really interesting thing to think about. I think I also thought that for a long time too. And I just don't remember how I unlearned that. Kaylee Gates. <laughs> I believe this too. I thought the underground railroad was a literal rail system with trains and such that ran like a subway through the South. Yes, Kaylee. I also thought the same thing. I, I actually, uh, I remember I learned that from a, uh, a young adult uh, book made by the people used to make choose your own adventure, but they were time machine books. And there was one about Harriet Tubman and then the underground railroad. And that is how I, that is how I uh, learned about that before we learned about it in school. And it was amazing to me because I thought I was going to be reading the adventures of people on an actual underground railroad. Jerry begs. is another comic book thing, man. They were, they just lied to children. He was, he said he used to believe the sea monkeys were, um, you know, Existed exactly as advertised. and If you've never seen the sea monkeys as they were advertised, they were advertised as little creatures with faces that had like a family and they would do things in your aquarium. And uh, he said he was very disappointed (laughs) to find out that they were just, you know, well, he didn't write it, but I I actually did this so I can tell you what he found out. Uh, I I got the sea monkeys because apparently I was the kind of kid who wanted things out of the back of comic books and they're just shrimp. They are just shrimp that can be freeze dried and brought back to life with some water and some salt. Very disappointing. Carly Perkins said that she used to think that Pink Floyd was a guy named Floyd who had pink hair or uh, was a, was very flamboyant and wore pink clothes and stuff. That's what I thought. I thought that Pink Floyd was uh, one of those people from the seventies who was uh, you know, something like uh, Ziggy Stardust, but no Pink Floyd is a band and I did If you're a kid, you don't know that until somebody, uh, in the older generation reveals it to you. Red pond writes that he was very disappointed to find out that professional wrestling wasn't real, that it's fake and, you know, they're acting. And, uh, I remember finding that out and my grandfather still believed that it was real and no one in the family wanted to take that away from him. So he lived out his entire life, not really knowing that professional wrestling was fake because he sure loved to watch it. Wow. That brings back a weird memory. Mark A W. He wrote. This is so weird. That whenever you cross a, lo- a large bridge, when he was younger, he remembers that he would travel on the back seat and look up at the bridge as you were going across it, and he always thought that the, the car was actually going up the cables to the top of the bridge and then back down to the other side. I love that. That's awesome. Thank you, everyone. You can read the rest of these at uh, Facebook. I'm. I could read all of these on, on the air, but it would take like fifteen minutes. I think they're just so. Cool. Because we can all identify with this. We all used to believe things as children that when we got older, we realized were not true. And what I'm trying to understand better in this episode is how do we form beliefs and then how do we update them? Like what, at what point in our childhood did we decide that's not so? And, you know, when did we decide Santa Claus is probably not real? Um, I remember how I found out Santa Claus wasn't real. I took a piece of string and I put it in the door of our house. And here's why. Because m- my uh, house didn't have a chimney. Uh, and so I asked my parents, how did Santa Claus get into our house? And they said he he just went through the front door. And so I, uh, on Christmas Eve, put a piece of string uh, across the bottom of the door that he would have to break with his feet as he walked in. And uh, when I woke up the mor- that morning it wasn't broken. And I was like, okay, now that's probably not true. So I went to my dad and said, hey, the string didn't break. uh, So what's up with that? And he said, well, if this guy's got flying reindeer, don't you think that he could you know, walk through the string without breaking it or know that it's there? And I was like, well, okay, that's a pretty good explanation. But then I asked my mom and she said, well, it's because Santa Claus isn't real. And so (laughs) my, my mom broke the news to me. So I remember having to update my belief then, but also being a bit Freaked out by the fact that I had two con- conflicting stories from the two people who basically were giving me all of my beliefs up until that point. So, what I was hoping to get at with that question is this notion that we know that we used to believe in one way and now we believe in another. We can sort of identify how we stopped believing in one way and how we now believe in another way. But it's really difficult to sort of pinpoint why we believe the things that we believe now. And What process is involved whenever we are confronted with information that seems to challenge our beliefs and how we go about assessing that new information? There's a psychologist. His name is Jim Alcock, and he studies belief. He's been studying belief for a very long time, and he actually refers to the brain as a belief generating machine. He sees it as sort of one of its central functions is to create beliefs and then hold on to them. He uh, calls it a belief engine. And so I, I asked him, what do you mean by that term?
1: yeah what I mean by that is we 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 tend to think that we choose our beliefs, so if somebody says uh, you know uh, is your president a good president uh, someone will say yeah I, I believe he is or no he's not, and then they can come up with justification for either position, and they think they're making their decision based purely on on um facts but but what i'm what I'm saying is that we're not aware of how we reach those decisions much of the time. And so, for example, when it comes to our views of politicians, much of it is, much of those views are shaped not by an analysis, a direct analysis of what the person says or does, but by our feelings. And those feelings can be um, influenced by uh, the, the way the person looks, by the person's tone of voice, by all sorts of things of which we're not aware. And so, as we go through our daily lives, we're, we're, we're taking in all kinds of information. We're, we're screening it against beliefs that we already have. So, so some of it will reject. Uh, Other information that comes in is consistent with what we already have. We, we ex- more likely accept that as true. Uh, but we, our, our beliefs are being changed from time to time, modified, or new beliefs are being instilled without our knowledge, without our control. And, and that's my point. That when we, when, when I ask you uh, about any belief you have, and I say, well, why do you believe that? That challenge will immediately force you to try to come up with an explanation of why you believe it. And you say, well, I believe this because I have this information, that information. But much of the time, we don't know why we have the belief. We we find rational justifications for the beliefs, and we're, but we're, and 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 we persuade ourselves, oh yeah, that's why I, I think that.
0: Jim Alcock is getting at something here that is sort of the real reason why it's so hard for us to understand why facts don't work on people, why it's so difficult to get someone to shake a belief that we know just can't be true. And that is that beliefs begin as emotions and emotion is integral to all of our thinking, believing, feeling, judging, and decision-making. Even though we would like to think that we could be better human beings, perhaps if we were more Spock-like, if we were more, logical, more rational. The research suggests that that is just not so. In fact, uh, I wrote about this just a few weeks ago on the blog about how Antonio Damasio, the neuroscientist, he deals with people who have lost their ability to feel emotions, or at least they can only feel emotions barely. And those people are unable to make decisions anymore, unable to navigate their lives. When you hand a person like that, who may be very intelligent, may be able to carry a conversation with people on many different topics. But if you hand a person like that two pins, a red pin and a blue pin, and you ask them to fill out a questionnaire, this becomes a 30 minute long decision because they start this long logic tree of every possible reason why you might would want to pick a blue pin and every possible reason why you might would want to pick a red pin and every possible future outcome from picking one or the other. And it just becomes impossible. So when we choose something, even when we choose a belief to stick to, that is not something that we ever do in a purely rational way.
1: You know, our brains really work in in, in two different modes. One of them is the the cognitive, intellectual, uh, rational mode, the, and the other is is uh, is it's almost like a separate uh, response system in, in in the body, in the brain, and it we can call it uh, intuitive or or other labels people have used. But the, but the fact is, these things can sometimes. Uh, Work in real opposition, and they say so, so you take, for example, a person who um, uh, has a fear of of dogs, or you know sees a little puppy and starts to shake and feels frightened. That person can say, "But you know, I, I know that dog can't hurt me. It's chained up, and it's a little dog anyway." And 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 yet I'm I'm feeling really scared, and it doesn't matter. You know, if you've got a kind of phobic reaction. How intellectual you are, you can't, by virtue of your intellect alone, turn off that reaction and And so, to a lesser extent, this occurs with all kinds of other beliefs that we have about things um, that 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 people react emotionally or intuitively you know this intuitive system produces a response. Um, if it's one that we we, we don't like, take take the example of racism. I think uh, there are lots of cases where where people do not want to be racist. Intellectually, they 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 are not racist, and yet emotionally, they react in a negative way, an uncomfortable way, when around people from from certain groups. Uh, the The danger always is because that kind of inconsistency is uncomfortable, and the danger always is since it's extremely d- difficult for an individual in a very short period of time to 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 reverse that emotion. It's much easier to bring the cognition into line with it, right? Uh, so, um, I, I'm not racist, but those people make me nervous. Rather than I'm nervous, they're not making me nervous. I'm nervous. That's my problem, and I want to do something to change my my physiological reaction, and that's going to take some time. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this this uh, this this opposition between intellect and and, and intuition. Uh, a colleague who's a very smart guy, very rational, very skeptical about uh, uh, anything that he, he can't uh, uh, find uh, good evidence for, and yet uh, st- strongly argues that that taking megadoses of vitamin C will will head off colds. And I've pointed out that although there used to be some some reason perhaps to believe that, that all the good research in recent years has shown that vitamin C doesn't ward off colds at all. And, and he said, well, I've read that stuff, but my own experience is that it works. And so one day I saw him with a cold and I said, what, what happened to your vitamin C? He says, well, I have a cold, but it would have been much worse had I not taken the mega dose. And I said to him, so it's impossible for you to disconfirm your belief. You, you, whatever happens, you'll say the vitamin C worked. If you have a cold, it would have been worse without it. Uh, if you didn't take the vitamin C, you've got a cold. That's because you didn't take the vitamin C. And he admitted this, and he said, You're right, but I just have such a strong conviction that this works. And that's what I get get back to on talk of the definition of, of belief. It's got the, the content and, and the conviction. And when you have that conviction... We, we we like to think that conviction comes purely because of our rationality, but but often it's because of of experience and this sort of intuitive intuitive side of the the system.
0: Many psychologists and neuroscientists have written about this recently. Daniel Kahneman, David Eagleman, Jonathan Haidt. The idea being that we have an emotion first, and then we have a cognition second, and oftentimes the cognition, the thought, the rationality, the reasoning, it's It's all it's doing is serving the emotion. All it's doing is rationalizing and justifying the way we feel. And we may not even know that we feel that way. We may not even be aware that all of this stuff is happening behind the curtain. We just produce a thought. And as psychologist George Miller once said, it is the result of thinking, not the process of thinking that appears spontaneously in consciousness. Jim Alcock said that um, he really noticed this one time whenever he was telling a a story to one of his children and his child asked for a ghost story and he didn't have a ghost story available. So he just made up one on the spot. And he said that during telling that ghost story, he actually started to feel creeped out and uh, uneasy and scared. He was scaring himself, even though he knew he was making it up on the fly. He explained that Somewhere in his childhood, somewhere in forming the brain that he now has in his skull, the idea of ghosts has been, you know, established. And so he has an emotional response to the very notion of it, even when he is the person conjuring up the uh, the fictional images for someone else. You, One of the things you wrote about that I love, uh, you said that if you imagine this, you had this thought experiment where you said... Um, imagine if uh, if I told you that I came home last night and there was a cow in my living room, All right, yeah. you you would laugh, but you would probably not believe me. But if I told you I came home last night and I saw a um a glowing aura over the uh, the chair that my grandfather used to sit in and he just recently died, you wouldn't be you probably would be a little a little bit um less skeptical of that. Uh, so could you sort of like explore that idea for
1: us? Well, sure. And I'd use this example. In many, many talks i've given and uh and, and and it you know it doesn't matter how how sophisticated the audience is, it always works uh you You mentioned the cow and 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 there's a you know people titter about it ha 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 and then you mentioned the the aura, and people grow quiet and I say how, how come no one laughed at that and that has exactly to do with what I was saying earlier that in childhood we we were were given these notions about ghosts and the supernatural and and the emotion that becomes associated with that—that it, 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 that emotional reaction doesn't go away just because we later on decide that there are no ghosts. And so it's very similar to what I mentioned—you know, making up a ghost story and feeling a shiver down my spine. You start to talk about ghosts, and and even amongst people who don't believe in them, there's a, there's a different emotional reaction because. Down deep, at at some level, for just about everybody, you're you're tapping into something that that that, that used to, when in childhood, um, be associated with with a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of fear, mm-hmm. and it's it's uh, of course what what makes people more vulnerable then to um, belief in the in in the paranormal or in in the supernatural later on in life. So you know, I I've often said. <laughs> um, I don't believe in ghosts, but put me in a in a in a castle in Transylvania by myself at night uh, with nothing but a flashlight, um, I will be scared of ghosts. Probably, I mean, I, not not intellectually, right. saying there are right. no ghosts, but I'll be nervous for no good reason because of all the associations I've had with in, growing up with castles in Transylvania, etc., and and so. It's like watching, like watching
0: a scary movie or or, or 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 an exciting movie, or you know you know absolutely you know that Brad Pitt is the actor in this thing and he's not a, he's not really in danger and you're not in danger either, but you still can't get past the emotional intuitive responses that are coming out of your body
1: so that's right exactly that's a good example, and that's again because of this you know the the the, 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 the separation in our brain these two sort of parallel but but different systems, the intellectual and the and the emotional, and uh, we, 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 we can't directly control the emotional reaction. Um, and so, you know, I remember years ago uh, in a discussion with someone, I, I don't know how it came up, but I said, Do you believe in God? And he said, Only when I'm scared.
0: Jim Alcock is currently working on a book about belief, and he is a professor of psychology at York University. Our guest on this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast is Will Storr, a journalist, a novelist, a, um, a very adventurous man who has i written a book called The Unpersuadables, where he goes around the world. If you're in the UK, it's called The Heretics, by the way. Uh, But The Unpersuadables is a book about a a journalist who goes around the world trying to interview all the people who believe fringy, uh, sometimes very strange things, whether it's uh, being abducted by UFOs or that the earth is only 6,000 years old or that uh, you can uh, reach nirvana through yoga or you can... um, the, uh, that homeopathy is the uh, end all be all cure for very serious illnesses or that the Holocaust didn't happen. There's all sorts of things. He even spends time with people who have, um, a, uh, a scratching disorder that causes them to believe that there are filaments that are growing out of their skin. And, uh, he spends a lot of time on both sides of every single one of these topics. He doesn't just, um, you know, you know, point and stare and laugh. In fact, he doesn't do that at all. He tries to really deeply empathize with each one of these, um, these groups and the people that are in them. And then he also talks to scientists and experts who have, um, evidence that either supports or does not support what these people have to say. And he also spends a lot of time with the skeptics, um, the, the, skeptical community, people like James Randy and stuff like that. Uh, some of the people who've, uh, actually been on the show and he, them to the same test. He makes uh, the same assessment among them. Uh, are you is what you're thinking and saying and doing just in group out group tribalism? Um, do you actually have an, an intimate understanding of the things that you believe, or do you just accept what authority figures are telling you? It it, it runs the gamut. It goes all across the board, and it does a fantastic job. I think this is uh, easily. Uh, there's so many. I actually have a physical copy of the book. It's not a Kindle copy, and I've I have circled and underlined so many things and made so many marginalia notes. Uh, This is for me personally, especially because this book is so concerned with make, with having beautiful prose, um, and being and diving deep into the, um, the mind of the author and trying to, um, put his own feet to the fires that he's uh, stoking to put everyone else's feet to as well. I, I just, just think this is the best book written on this topic. I think this is the the culmination of a lot of different um, viewpoints, but in a way that's literary and beautiful. And I love the book. And I've, a lot of people have asked me, could I get Will Storr on the show? People that have had the same reaction to reading the book. And I'm happy to say he is here. This is the interview. Um, and full disclosure, I had to edit the interview down a little bit because it was, we spoke for way longer than I usually speak to someone and we got off on a, on a long tangent that involved Rupert Sheldrake. And if you want to know what he has to say about that, it's in the book and uh, read the book. <laughs> so, um, uh, and so that part I took out and I took about this other part where we were talking all about, uh, uh the internet and, uh, just our our troubles and our trials and tribulations with trying to be good citizens of the internet uh, after learning all that we've learned uh, when it comes to biases and delusions and stuff. So uh, that aside though, everything else is in there and I think you're really going to enjoy this. It's such a, he's such an interesting person. It's such a great book. So here we go. We'll store everyone. Let's pick his Will, you spend, uh, in the book, you spent intimate time with young earth creationists, Holocaust deniers, homeopaths, um, people who send uh, people back through their past lives as other people and and things like that. And I, I think many people look at those individuals and groups to which they belong as either being stupid or ignorant or crazy or under the influence of some kind of manipulation. And I don't think you agree with that. Uh, how do you see those sorts of people?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that the, the, the kind of the first insight came to me actually sort of in the first chapter of the book, which deals with, you know, young Earth creationists. And I've been a journalist for, you know, getting on for 14, 15 years now. And I've always been interested in people with kind of crazy beliefs. And um, it kind of hit me on that trip when I was with this guy, John Mackay, who's this Australian um man who's very influential in the kind of creationist scene, both in Australia, in the UK and in the US. And, you know, um, he wasn't stupid. This wasn't a stupid man. Um, uh, I think one of, the, one, one, you know, the, one of the moments I remember was, was actually, I first met him doing this big talk in this um, town hall, in this little town in kind of the remote north of Australia, which is a bit like perhaps the kind of Bible Belt of America. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he was selling all these, you know, religious items, but he was also selling like double DVD packs of debates that he did with scientists, and I'm like, you know, if this guy is debating scientists and then selling those debates <laughs> in yeah. DVD packs, he's obviously doing pretty well. And then that was kind of that—that's weird, you know. He's behaving like somebody who's winning. And then I interviewed him, and you know, and it's just like, you know, he's not stupid, he's not crazy, he's living an orderly life, you know. He's not mad, he's not, uh, he's not in, you know, he's, he, he's a successful individual. So, you know, if he's not stupid and he's not mad then what's the answer because this guy believes in some really extreme stuff that you know the earth is 6,000 years old he believes in you know the literal existence of the devil uh, uh you know all of these all of these really extreme things and yet you know and all the facts that, that he's constantly surrounded with which kind of demonstrate these things aren't true are completely he's impervious to them they don't have any effect on him and i you know i sat down and i interviewed him with a big long list of you know basic scientific facts and you know simple questions of logic like you know if god created the earth um you know uh if we are his only creation and why did he bother creating out of space you know This doesn't make any sense. And his answer was like, oh, it's uh, so we can tell the time. And then another one was like, you know, his idea, because he believes in, in the literal Garden of Eden, Which, because it was perfect, you have to believe that there was no, you know, nothing was carnivorous. Mm -hmm. There was no such thing as disease. Everything was kind of perfect and the weather was perfect. And I was like, if there were no carnivores, then why does T-Rex have huge teeth? And the answer is, so they can eat watermelons. (laughs) You know, like these facts were just not working on him. It was, you know, and so that, that to me is an interesting question. And suddenly it's a much more interesting exercise in kind of running around, you know, feeling superior and very pleased with yourself and pointing fingers again, you know, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid, which is what a lot of people do. And actually, they're not stupid. And once you kind of acknowledge that, suddenly you're in a much more interesting place as far as I'm concerned. And that's, and that's you know, why don't facts work on people? What's going on there?
0: Okay, well, and you come back to that over and over again. And, and the people who believe these ideas that, as you say, they're, they're heretical to scientific consensus, and, and it isn't that they're unaware of the facts that inform everyone else's opinions. They know what we know, and they reject all of that. And they often see people who accept certain scientific facts actually as they're the rubes. And, but when you bring this point up, uh, you point toward yourself, and then of course it bleeds over into the reader, and you ask, how do I know that I'm right and that they're wrong? So in your mind, what, what does constitute an irrational belief?
2: Well, oh, I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, what does constitute a rational belief? Um, it's very hard um, uh, for any individual to kind of categorically uh, kind of understand, you know, to, to kind of you know, separate my rational beliefs from my irrational beliefs. know, there are lots of questions that kind of immediately come up in response to that. And I think one of the main ones is, you know, how did we come upon this belief? And I think one of the warning signs for me is emotion. Um... Uh, a, 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 a guy, a, new, a psychologist, who you, you may be, I'm sure you're aware of Professor Jonathan Haidt. Mm, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Book. And he said to me, you "Know if you, it's something along the lines of, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was that basically, if you want to find irrationality, then look for the, the things that people make sacred. Look mm, for the, yeah. you know, and and I read that as if to say, look for the things that they're really emotional about. You know, he said that, you know, although he he believes in climate change, he's, he's not a climate skeptic. He doesn't believe, he doesn't trust the left. To tell them the truth about climate change because they've made it like a sacred thing that, that you can't criticize and uh, and on the right, he doesn't trust the right to tell them about you know the free market, the, you know the ability of the invisible hand of the free market to do only goods have only good effects because that's sacred to their kind of sense of self and and how you can tell what's sacred to somebody is the things that they're emotional about. You know if if you go into an environment, if you if you go into an environment full of people who are debating an issue extremely emotionally, then You know, you're in a place of irrationality. And likewise, I think if you are considering ideas that make you very, very emotional and you can just feel those, you know, those hot kind of feelings and uh, rising in yourself, then you're in a place where you literally can't trust your own brain to tell you the truth about them Mm -hmm. because it's that it's that irrational part of your you know, um, brain working. I mean, we're speaking now in the context of uh, some really appalling events um, in the Gaza Strip. And I don't trust myself to kind of tweet about that, particularly, (laughs) or talk to anybody about that. Because when I think about what's going on in the Gaza Strip, I become so emotional, you know, that I just want to start shouting, Mm -hmm. you know, crying and things. And so that that tells me, you know, A, shut up about it in public, (laughs) because you can't trust what you're thinking you know, and well, and well, that's the B really, you know, you, I I don't trust my own brain to to, to to think rationally on this matter. So it's one of these things I've kind of put aside from now yes. and try not to think about. So I think that's, I mean, that's the way to tell if you're, 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 you're in danger of being irrational about something.
0: Right. And I mean, that's one of the things that like as reading your book, I was like, yes, my God, there's another, someone else found, got to the exact same place, which is after a lot of After talking about this and researching it for so long, like um, you develop and just uh, let me tell me if this is true for you as well. You develop a a feel like a more mature sense of empathy, a more mature sense of humility. And then also um, it's it's made me a better user of social media because I tend to. Reach for the keyboard. Sometimes I even write out something about how much I don't like or disagree with something, and then I just <laughs> read it and then delete it and then move on throughout yeah. my day. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's what it's like to be a real adult—is to delete the thing that you were going to say.
2: I absolutely agree, and, and actually, I found that I don't use Twitter anywhere near as much as I probably should. For my, you know, they're writers these days. You, know, you should be on Twitter all the time. But you know, I, I'm the same as you. Every time I reach for the, for, for, you know, for, the, for Twitter and want to kind of you know get that get weirdly and ir- totally irrational human urge to kind of broadcast my views to the world as if it makes any difference whatsoever i kind of stop myself i you know i think that that's a warning signal if you're if you're feeling that strong about something that you just want to tell everybody what you think <laughs> you know i think you need to step back and it is and i think you mentioned the word empathy there too and i think that's that's really crucial I, and i think that's what's missing Uh, in the conversation uh, that that take place between you know amongst atheists amongst rationalists amongst skeptics you know you don't see much empathy often uh, with people they're very angry and they're very quick to uh, point the finger at these religious people and whoever and and, and sneer at them and and, 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 um, kind of put them down Mm -hmm. but I think uh, uh, as you say uh, the more you understand about the psychology of belief and the more you meet these people uh, the more that empathy grows and the more you you know the more you realize that um uh, uh you know we don't get to choose the beliefs that are most precious to us you know i i i used to when i was you know in my teens Growing up as a, an atheist amongst Catholics used to feel very superior because, you know, they were so stupid mm-hmm. believing in the Bible. And I was so clever because I didn't believe in this stuff. Mm-hmm. But, of course, I've got no choice uh, on whether or not I believe in God. It just so happens that I don't. You know, I, 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 I couldn't decide suddenly to believe in God. I didn't make a rational, conscious decision to not believe in God. You know, the truth is that doesn't make me special. It just makes me a certain kind of person. And there are disadvantages in in, in not believing in in God. I mean, you know, I mean, if you believe in God, you've got an invisible best friend, which I could do with a lot of the time. (laughs) You've got someone to make you feel um, better and forgive you when you've done something wrong. You've got paradise to look forward to. I mean, there are huge advantages. You know, it sounds like I'm being flippant, but really I'm not. I mean, there are uh, lots of studies which show that people with uh, supernatural beliefs like this, they're happier. They experience less stress. So, you know, you have to step back and ask yourself, Who's
0: the smart one? <laughs> right. Uh, well, that um. So that brings that brings up something um, in your book. There's there's an argument that you present that I think might be difficult for some people to um, maybe not to grasp, but to embrace. And that is, you said that on one hand, you see science as as our greatest achievement, as a tool we invented to save us from ourselves, to keep us from thinking in the ways we naturally think. But all those things like confabulation and biases and fallacies and motivated reasoning and all that stuff. Arguing. Irrationally to protect those emotions that come bubbling up, but then you follow up with this um, by saying that you 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 believe that we should empathize with people who hold these fringe beliefs and that we should sort of celebrate their eccentricities and that um, madness that does no harm sort of provides a richness to life. And I really want to connect to that idea because it, it feels beautiful. But how how does one balance those two seemingly competing
2: concepts? Well, I think we already do a pretty good job. Um, of balancing those concepts and of course this is an area of great tension um, so it, it's an imperfect uh, model that we have but we have we have laws you know we have laws against hate speech we've got you know if if people are found to have denied their child um, conventional medicine and instead treated them with topiary homeopathy and that child comes to harm that parent goes to prison you know like we, we have laws in place to protect ourselves and people with um, irrational beliefs. Of course, you know, things like the anti-vaccination movement, you know, th- th- there are lots of areas where we could, uh, you could argue we could do with new laws and we could do with enforcing those laws uh, in a much more fierce manner. And I would embrace that idea. But the broader thing about people who have beliefs which don't negatively impact other people, uh, I, you know, I, I absolutely, you know, in, it, I, I comp- really believe this idea that we do not want this terrible i mean okay i'll tell you a story i um in 2007 i did some i reported i spent a week in the world's largest refugee camp which is on the somalia uh kenya border it's called Dadab, and it's where all the somalis have fled uh from the terrible war that's going on in their country and it's been around for like 30 years there are people in Dadab who were born there and have only ever known life in a desert refugee camp. It's a really extraordinary place. And the vast majority of people living there are very orthodox Muslims. And uh, the experience I had there was one I just wasn't expecting. And, it, and, and um, you know, I was sort of talking to these people, hanging out with these people and getting their stories. And the impression I was left with was just this kind of, and this is the real damage to me of, uh, you know, very strict religion and very strict thought kind of concepts and that they seek to turn everybody into the same person mm. so everybody that I was there um, uh, it, it, all I wanted really to talk about was the Quran all they wanted to talk about was religion somebody um, called my uh, fiance at the time and she said that she was a whore because she lived with me and we weren't married uh, and you know uh, uh, as lefty liberal as you want to be that stuff gets to you and you know uh, and that to me I really felt that strongly the idea that yeah you know, this is this is one of the great evils of religion mm-hmm. when it is when it is for enforced in a strict way is that you know it gives you gives you it gives you modes for living these are this is how you should dress these are the things you should say these are the things you should believe but you can also see that existence in some of the people who you know vigorously fight for kind of a richard dawkins view of the world in which we should all we should be these rationalists and we should only go where the evidence takes us and all these other things there's this there's this um there's this uh, willingness there to have everybody conform to this very strict regime of belief and understanding and behaviour. and I just think that's catastrophic uh, for uh, humanity. you know I, I I spend my life as a journalist and uh, uh, meeting really extraordinary people uh, with a huge range of beliefs, and I would hate. There to be some magic wand, magic <laughs> rationalist wand that you could wave that would turn everybody into a you know into a a, a a a person the kind of person that might go to a James Randi conference, you know, I, and I, and I and I think really I I I, I call eccentricity the you know the richest of our species in the book, and it, and I and I really do believe that uh, you, you know some some of these people who hold these unusual beliefs are kind of I mean you might not agree with what they they think and what they say, but that you know they that That belief is part of their you know often part of a fascinating, sometimes amusing, sometimes challenging, um colorful personality, and I would not want to kind of bleed that from the world,
0: okay, but uh, I know we're going we're gonna run out of time, and I just want to ask a couple quick questions here about um about religion because I've never ever talked about religion in my books, my podcasts, or anything at all because I usually tend to I feel like what I talk about uh, addresses religion without having to talk about religion. Although there is plenty of research into religion itself, but I'd like to get your view on it because, uh, your book is so much, deals so much with belief. Um, do you, uh, from your experience, do you see religion as being a different kind of belief from other beliefs? Like people who believe they've been abducted by aliens or that, um, that, you know, believe that they were John Lennon in a past life. Is it fair to lump religion in with that kind of belief or do you see it as a different kind of belief?
2: I think it's only different in the sense that it's much more deeply rooted and profound. It, it, um, you know, as I say in the book, you know, my idea about belief and, and my idea about our rationality is that we effectively all live our lives in story mode. You know, we're basically all playing David in the, in the story of David and Goliath on a daily basis. We're all the plucky hero, struggling against great odds to live a better life. Now, uh, uh, who we cast as the kind of uh, the villains in that story? And who we cast as our allies—you know—bends and colors to an extraordinary degree. The kinds of things we believe, you know, we're, we're essentially kind of tribal people. So, people, uh, who, you know, if we're, if we're if we're a skeptic and we, we're in the skeptic tribe, and we hear people talking darkly about Rupert Sheldrake, we will be completely open to uh, accepting, uncritically, anything negative we hear about Rupert Sheldrake. Um, so, you know, so, so so it's all about identity. And I think that religion is, 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 I think it's only kind of special in inverted commas because it, it is at such the deep root, it, it, affect, it, it affects your kind of hero narrative in such a profound way. Uh, you know, I just, it, it's, um, yeah, I, I guess I just, I just, I just feel that it's one of those, it's one of those, uh, you know, or how to explain the way the brain understands the world. You know, is, is in just incredibly intricate networks of cause and effect. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that that's basically it. And um, that belief in religion, the belief that everything you see is created by God, he's basically the, ultimate, the original cause of it, and he affects everything. It's so profound, and it's so fundamental, and it so connects. It's at the root of who somebody thinks they are and how they experience the world that I just think it's, you know, it is, it is, uh, in a kind of facile way, uh, an irrational belief in the same way that somebody thinks I've just seen a UFO, but it's, it's just much more at, at the very roots of somebody's sense of self.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: If and, that makes any sense at sure. all. Sure. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. No, no I, I see. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and i've noticed that people who aren't skeptical of things like noah's ark or parting the red sea they at least in my country they they often seem to be the same people who are skeptical of whether Barack Obama was born in the United States, or if vaccines are, yeah. they're also skeptical that vaccines don't cause autism. There seems to be a lot of overlap. I may not be being fair yeah. here, but there seems to be a lot of overlap between believing in something that seems fantastical with very little evidence, while also at the same time, not believing in something that seems reasonable and supported by evidence. And it's like this balancing act of selective skepticism. What do you make of that?
2: Well, I think it goes back to the chapter on politics. You know, I, I, I was really—I've always been curious because it seems like such a weird thing. What? Why are there are the why? Are there, why are there are these clusters of belief on the left and on the right? You know, what, why? Why might somebody uh, be critical of Israeli foreign policy? And at the same time, be up, you know, be supportive of higher taxes. You know, they, these things have nothing to do with each other. And yet, you get these huge correlations between, you know, the same people be the same things. And so, I dug deep down into that, and and what I found was um, that the the the, the 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 science, the, the neuroscience of it is that, or the the genetics of it, is that. Um, they reckon there's around a thousand genes that influence whether we turn out left or right. And of course, obviously, genes are only really part of that picture, but that, but that, but, but there's around a thousand. And what those genes influences is, uh, is how scared we are, how fearful we mm. are. So, some, so, uh, and th- they think uh, that people on the right tend to be more more fearful in general. And if you follow that kind of logic through, it it makes sense, you know. So we, we're born with our brains in this kind of expectant state with a likelihood you know, with a kind of more fearful state. And so we're going to be likely born in a family that shares that kind of makeup, who will kind of uh, bring us up with those beliefs. We will probably, if we're on the right, we'll live in the country because that's a bit less scary in a small community. It's not like the big city where there's so much, so, you know, there's mm-hmm. so many other people and it, there's so, there's so much going on. We'll read the right newspapers. We'll go to the certain schools. We'll go to church and everything then will reinforce this kind of rightward, um this right would uh, drift and so th- so i think that's the way that you can see like a certain kind of brain will alight on a certain kind of ideas if you if you dig down into fear you know that's the, the people who are fearful they, they they want to they don't like change they don't like novelty they're scared of it right they so they like structure and order and hierarchy they like institutions like the army Uh, they like history and tradition because they don't like change. I mean, that's why they call them conservatives because they want to conserve everything. Mm -hmm. But the liberals, on the other hand, who do like change, want to kick down all the the hierarchies. They they, they, they live in the cities. They like change. They like novelty. They like going out into the world and exploring. Uh, So... You know, it, it, I, I think that's the way that you can understand how kind of one personality trait and that fear can then kind of fan out and affect all these other beliefs. And I think it's the same with, you know, people who, be, like I hang out with those um, neo-Nazis. One of them was into his organic food and his anti-vaccination. <laughs> you know, I think, I think, if, I, I think my, I mean, I, I've not read any kind of studies on this, but my, my, my instinct on it uh, fr- from what I've learned is that perhaps if you have, you know, if you are extremely fearful, you are paranoid, you are extremely mistrustful of authority, then, you know, uh, and of the kind of the views of the orthodoxy, then it makes sense that you're going to be distrustful of what the orthodoxy say about the Holocaust and whether it really happened or not. Mm You're going to be mistrustful about what the government tells you about vaccinations. You know, that kind of distrust can can bleed into all sorts of different areas.
0: Yeah, and... It feels like uh, you know. It makes total sense genetically. I mean, like there's a the person who's willing to. I mean, you know, you we all have recognized e- even like you know in a in a pet there's there 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 are animals that are um, standoffish and are hesitant and skittish and there are those that just yeah. that just approach uh, approach humans when they really probably shouldn't do that <laughs> and uh, yeah and so we know that, that genetically it makes sense that in human beings there's a there's a there's a strain there's a strain of us who are Open, maybe when we shouldn't be, and there, is some, uh, there are some yeah. there. Those of us who are skittish, and in evolutionary speaking, the skittish thing probably makes a lot more sense. Like, uh, yeah. But civilization gives us the opportunity to be more open, and I think that yeah. like that's why you see that that's why uh, civilization progresses uh, so often in the direction of people who are open to change but for that very reason that civilization is only possible because that that allows for the expression of that genetic profile at least that's my speculation so
2: yeah yeah i mean, yeah, they, I, mean yeah, I i think as jonathan hay pointed out it, it's good that we need both you know it's, it's, it's good that you know that the, the right the conservatives get in the, Republic, you know, as in the republicans get in for a certain amount of time and kind of Try and uh, you know make maintain order and structure, and then they give way to the liberals who come in and try and kick everything down, and everybody gets a turn, and we end up <laughs> hopefully roughly going in the right direction in a you know kind of very general way. But also it's that idea of it's kind of self reinforcing. So I mean, my, for my own personal, you know, my own personality, my own kind of struggles on a daily basis, you know, I, I really struggle to make friends. I'm quite an isolated, lonely person, and you know that creates a general mindset of. I don't really want, when I'm going out on the street, I don't really want people to talk to me. I don't, you know, I, if people are kind of friendly to me in a, in a store, I kind of shrink back from that. And because they can read that on my face, then the response I get from people when I'm meeting them is generally mistrustful and hostile. And uh, and so it reinforces that idea that the world is a kind of scary place and you don't really want to hang out with people because they're scary. And I only really noticed this, um, you know, since I since I married my wife and we'd be out in certain situations and, I, and I'd have an interaction with somebody. And they'd go, and, I'd, and, and it would go badly. And I'd say to myself, "My God, you know that person was so rude." And they were like, "Well, they were, she was like, well, they were reacting to you. You know, it was you that were, was being rude first, and then they were rude back." And so, you know, you can see how uh, that's invisible to me. I didn't think I was being rude. And it's the same. It's just that idea that, you know, we we create the worlds that we live in mm-hmm. by the kind of implicit beliefs that we have, it's self-reinforcing. And and I think it's very true of irrational beliefs as well. Is that, is that, you know, the more we embrace certain mindsets, the more those mindsets will feel true and kind of in inverted commas, prove themselves to be true.
0: Right. All right. Well, let me, let me end this with, with one sort of really bizarre question. And that is, um, and, and obviously I could talk about this for 17 days straight, but, um, <laughs> when the, uh, Okay, so thanks to social media, we, we, we find ourselves uh, either involved in arguments or spectating on arguments about things like climate change and gun control and gay marriage and yada, 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 all these wedge issues. And why do you think facts don't work on people?
2: Okay, I, I, I'll try and answer this as briefly as possible, but I, I, I tell the story in, in the book about this guy who's a climate change and his name's, and his name's uh, Lord Christopher Monckton and he's a British aristocrat mm-hmm. and he's a big hit on the Party movement in the States. He was a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher, who was basically our Reagan in the 80s. Very right-wing guy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, this is the, I, I got to the point in the book when I interviewed Monckton where I began to realize that, you know, our, our, talking about science is kind of pointless, actually, digging into the facts digging into the kind of the rights and wrongs of the certain facts. And what you need to do is find out how somebody experiences the world. In other words, find out their hero-maker narrative. What is the story that their brain is telling them? And so I just sat down with uh, Lord Moncton and I just told him, tell me a story, you know, what, tell me about your life, your heroes and villains. And he said, well, um, I was born, I went to, you know, I was born to exceptional parents. He said, of course, he's a lord. So he was born into extremely wealthy aristocracy. He went to school, harrow school, very posh school, Um, a a time when the British Empire was still a thing. And uh, he said that he he very proudly told me that his school song was from Harrow school to rise and rule. I mean, they were literally (laughs) brought up to believe that they were going to be the masters of the universe. And then the Second World War happened. And what happened was that um, in fighting the Second World War, uh, Britain lost... You know, it cost us a fortune. It, it broke the country. I mean, this is actually true. I and mean, we had to go to America, to the US, kind of cap and hand afterwards, and ask for kind of this massive loan of money, just um, just to survive because defending Europe basically, you know, it, well, it destroyed us for, for decades. And uh, but so this is where Lord Monckton's story kicks in. And so one of the one of the, one of the things that main things we were wanting to pay for was the welfare state. You know, so it's social security, na- national insurance. Uh, this kind of thing, which is obviously a, a left-wing um, idea. Mm-hmm. And so he blames the left. It's, it's, the, it's the left's fault that, 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 that we lost our British Empire, which was so fabulous and marvellous for the world. And then we went into the Cold War, and the communists came along. And, of course, the communists are also on the left. They're they very jealous of the people, the capitalists. And because they're so jealous, they want to destroy capitalism. That's simply the reason. It's not because they want social justice, it's not because they don't want inequality, it's because they're jealous and they want to destroy capitalism. And there are two ways they did this. The first was by um, organizing in secret all the, all the minor strikes that we had in the UK, because uh, uh, they want to destroy our energy infrastructure. Um, and the other way was by uh, concocting this alliance of scientists and atheists that would spread misinformation. Um, uh, about the environment and about the world in such a way that it would cost industry and business, you know, crazy amounts of money, and it would basically fall to pieces. And so they came up with all these lies about, uh, you know, about um, the effects of fertilizers, pesticides, all these lies about um, the hole in the ozone layer, climate change. And he said, even though the Berlin Wall has now fallen and communism is now over, the UN and, the, uh, and all the other uh, international institutions who are trying to fight climate change, he said they're still fighting from the KGB playbook. And the reason they're doing that is because, just, because they want to take over the world. He literally believes the United Nations has a secret plan to take over the world. And Lord Monckton is one of these, he's a plucky David fighting Goliath, going around the world fighting all this skepticism he's getting fighting all the people making fun of him and you know flying the flag for truth and justice and that is that climate change is a completely harmless uh phenomena that's why he believes in climate change. Now, I could have sat down with him for two hours and talked about the hockey stick graph and this paper and that paper and you know, and run with this complete illusion that the reason Lord Monckton believes that climate, climate change isn't a problem is to do with anything like facts or rationality. Why he believes in climate change why he believes what he does about climate change is because it's completely essential to his sense of self and who he is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's only when you take a step back and look at somebody's entire story of their life, the, the, uh, the way they understand the world and their place within it and their fights and struggles, it's only then that you can actually see why they believe what they believe and why facts don't work. Because, you know, in the face of that that story in his head, that incredible, colorful, emotional <laughs> James Bond story that he, that he lives in the middle of, You know, some paper coming out isn't going to change that. Some guy on MSNBC saying 97% of scientists think climate change is a real thing. That's not going to change that. Nothing's going to change that. No fact is going to change that, because if it was to change, the entire sense of self would fall to pieces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's an extreme example, and, you know, the book's full of extreme examples simply because they're easier to talk about and explain, you know, the bigger the light and the bigger the shadow. But, you know, we're all Lord Monkton to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have these passionate beliefs that we believe passionately because they nourish and enrich our sense of who we are, our sense of ourselves as good people uh, fighting a noble fight in the world. And, you know, that's that's what we have to be suspicious of.
0: I know. And you and you do a great job at showing in the book that when you talk about the science of it and the neuroscience and the the psychology of our personal narratives and you call it, you know, the hero maker, our brain is a hero maker. Um, yeah. you, you describe, um, when people get in these arguments where we're trying to make the other person see things, not our way, we want to, we, you, we try to make people change their minds to not think the way they think anymore. And you call you say that it has an, an essential violence to it, that it's, um, uh, it's like higher than evangelism. And, uh, uh, it really made me think back of it. Like, that's why I've abandoned doing, like, I I try to not mention, you know, I try not to uh, attack anyone on social media anymore. I only, I try, I have like a, a this Bushido code thing of saying, yeah. of I'm only going to talk about things that I love and tell people about things that I like instead of this other thing around. Because I don't, not necessarily because I don't have things that I, I disagree with or want to, I want to attack things that are, that I don't like is that I know that I'm going to get in that mode where facts won't work on me and I will, and they won't work on the the other person either. And neither one of us is willing just to say, well, I believe this, I have an opinion, but you know, maybe it's wrong, but I don't know.
2: Yeah, that's it. I mean, and it's just that simple thought experiment, which kind of occurred to me at the very beginning of it all. And that's that, you know, I, I, I know logically that I'm not right about everything. You know, I can't be, I can't, you know, because if I, if I, if I'm right about everything, (laughs) it means I'm unique in the world. Like I'm the best person in the world. (laughs) if I'm literally right about everything. So, okay, I can accept that I'm wrong about probably quite a lot of things, but then when I interrogate in detail, what am I wrong about? I just discount them all. Well, I'm not wrong about this. I'm not wrong about that. I'm definitely not wrong about that. You know, it's impossible for us to see our own biases and prejudices. You know, we're all biased and prejudices, but we're all basically incapable of, of, understanding what they are so uh, as soon as you understand that it it kind of requires this humility which you're describing uh, and a kind of reluctance it's almost uh, in a way i almost want to say cowardly you know you don't i don't you know and it's probably had a negative effect on me as a journalist because when i'm writing pieces now i'm very reluctant to have that kind of strident viewpoint which is going to get page views and you know Mm. people tweeting about my piece because i just think well, what if i'm wrong about this i could be wrong about this and you almost find yourself kind of, uh, you know, uh, paralysed by this by, by by this notion of uh, God. You know, I, no matter how strongly I, th- I feel about this, I don't want to have it published in this in, you know this national newspaper because, <laughs> you know, what if I'm wrong? So I, you know, it's it, it's a kind of very weird place to be. But I oh, completely admire your, <laughs> your 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 position.
0: Oh no, it's <laughs> I don't I fail a lot, but I, (laughs) I, that's like, I had to actually say to myself, this is something that I do now. This is like a code of life. Only talk about things you like, do not, do not get it. Cause the worst thing in the world is go to, is on a Facebook page, is is on your Facebook page, seeing all these people, uh, a nonstop stream of, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. And it's a lot of it is just tribal trying to get people in your show, proving that you're in their in group and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to, I just, I, I just, I just can't because yeah. I'm bad at it. I'm I'm the kind of person yeah. that will think about it for four or five days. I'll be in the shower and I'll be like, okay, yeah. no, no, no. Okay, well, this is how actually I can get him. Yeah. T- this is how I will get him. This is exactly how I, you know. And it's just, yeah,
2: that's, uh, it. that's it. It becomes completely obsessive. And if you're, I mean, as you are, I'm sure, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're self-employed writers. If you get into an argument on Twitter, which thankfully doesn't have to be much because I just don't engage with it very much for these reasons. But if, you, if I get into an argument on Twitter, that's me gone for the day because I can't think about anything else. Right, exactly. And, it, and, 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 and Twitter is so bad for these things because it, it, it presses all those buttons. I mean, the first thing about Twitter is that every... Um, exchange is public and not only is it public it's public to the people that you admire most (laughs) they all can see it right it has 140 characters so you can't do those really absolutely essential good manner bits
0: right right
2: disagree i'm sorry i see what you're saying but you can't do any of that stuff so it's almost custom designed to create these massive (laughs) rows with people that probably wouldn't hopefully wouldn't happen if you were sober and you met them in a you know, under a normal, under normal circumstances. It, it's a ter- I mean, social media is, 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 is a, it's not encouraging to kind of reasonable <laughs> or rational debate at all.
0: Well, look, uh, I'm, thank you for letting me keep you for a, a longer than I said I would uh, do this for, but, um, and I could talk about this forever. But I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, if people want to find you, uh, want to keep up with your work, how is, what is the easiest way to do that?
2: Well, um, uh, my Twitter is just W store W S T O double R. And, uh, I, and I generally put links to all my kind of latest stories on my website, which is just willstore.com, So very simple.
0: Mm-hmm. And what are you working on um, next?
2: Well, well, I'm actually, uh, I'm about to start on the next book, which is going to be about the self. So that's kind of daunting and a bit scary, <laughs> but you know, uh,
0: well, I look, for- look forward to it. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I look forward to it. Um, this really is, uh, to me, the best book that has been written so far about these topics um, because it will, if you're the kind of person who buys these books, it will challenge you in a way that you did not expect to be challenged. And I think it will, um, I think it will expand your worldview in a way that we all need it expanded. So I really, I really thank you for writing the book.
2: Oh, no, uh, thank you for your comments, really. They mean an awful lot.
0: Uh, thanks so much, ma'am. Cheers. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. If you had to create a website right now, in other words, you wanted to build a website and it had to be up by the end of the day, before you went to sleep, there had to be a website out there that was either showing your work or had your name on it or had your logo on it, or you were selling stuff that you make right there on the website, where would you go to make something like that? Something that looked really good. I think maybe... You should go to Squarespace, squarespace.com, and for a free trial and ten percent off, you can go to that website and enter the offer code "less dumb" at checkout and immediately begin using things like drag and drop content, uh, enjoying twenty four seven support where people can help you do whatever it is you want to do through chat or email, and you can play around with their responsive design. And if you want to engage in commerce, if you want to sell things on the internet. You can do that too. And it's all ready for you. You don't have to go use any external service. And not only that, it's simple, it's easy, and it's beautiful. And they have a bunch of content already ready for you, a bunch of templates ready for you to use. And the plans start at about $8 a month. And it includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. So if you want to build a website... And you want to use a website to make that website that makes building websites easier than other websites where you have to build websites and you don't really understand what you're doing because you've never built a website before and you don't know how websites work on the inside, go to Squarespace. But if you actually do know how to make websites, you know how to code or do CSS or you have Photoshop skills. Well, then you can take what Squarespace gives you and make something amazing. Go to squarespace.com right now, click on some of the examples that they have out of the different templates, and you'll see that people are making all sorts of cool stuff. Actually, some people, some websites, some places you have visited in the past probably used Squarespace and you didn't even know it. For a free trial and 10% off at checkout, go to squarespace.com right now and use the offer code LESSDUMB because a better web starts with your website. You Are Not So Smart is supported by The Great Courses. Learning did not stop after I finished school. I know it's not going to stop after you finish school, or if you already finished it, I know you're ready to learn some more about a wide variety of things. And that's why I love this thing, The Great Courses. It's video and audio lectures taught by top professors and experts who are passionate and knowledgeable about the things that they talk about. And these are sometimes world famous well known people who you wish you could take a college course from and they're telling you about things that you know you've always wanted to learn about in a in a professional setting not a YouTube setting that's just fun and maybe not vetted so well but in a way that professional experts from around the world have vetted and made sure is the most accurate and most up to date information on the topic being presented now i was able to pick something for you to get at 80% off the original price and I picked Behavioral Economics, When Psychology and Economics Collide by Professor Scott Huttel. And this is such a cool course. I'm learning things in this course that I did not know because it smashes together psychology, sociology, neurology, and economics. And it gives you sort of insights into how human beings make decisions. And although I write about this all the time, I was not aware of many of the topics and the depth of some of the topics that hotel, presents in this course and I think you will really love it. It gives you all sorts of practical powerful tools for you to make better decisions in your own life not only just learning about how they work but how you can use the information to be a better person. So the great courses just what is their pedigree they've been around for 20 years they have 500 courses on things like science history literature music and all sorts of things and you can choose how you want to listen to it a cd a dvd a streaming Um, audio, something you use on an app or you use on your phone, that is up to you. How do you want to get the information? And also uh, my copy of the DVDs, it came with uh, booklets like tiny textbooks that go along with the courses. So right now, go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. Just going to that URL, you can use that URL to get 80% off the original price of behavioral economics when psychology and economics collide This is a really great offer. Go there now. Thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And now we return to our program.
2: What starts with the letter C? Cookie starts
1: with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Ah, uh, uh, Who cares about other things? C is for cookie.
0: On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader, You can send your recipes to David at you are not so smart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at YouAreNotSoSmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And oh boy, this week's recipe comes from Heather Clarkson. And she wrote that she's a new listener. She just finished listening to the Extinction Burst episode but she's not sure if there are rules involved because this is not her recipe. She says that she herself came up with, she found it on the internet and it's just amazing. And of course that's fine. Yes. If you find cookie recipes, I don't expect everyone to be a master baker. I'm sure many of the recipes so far came from somewhere. Uh, this one came from, um, a website called bakeaholic mama. Um, and at bakeaholicmama.com, uh, they, created these cookies called strawberry cheesecake sandwich cookies. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. Just looking at these uh, ingredients will blow your mind. Butter, sugar, vanilla, flour, strawberries, fresh, chopped, white chocolate chip cookies. And then there's a frosting that goes in the middle that is made of cream cheese, butter, white chocolate, vanilla, and confectioner sugar. Oh, man. This is, this is, uh... This is dangerous territory right here. You're you're really tempting the the gods with this one, is what you're doing. You're tempting fate itself to allow a human being to have this much pleasure at once. And uh, I'm willing I'm willing to shake my fists at the sky and try this. Oh man! So cooking these was a very long, involved process. My wife Amanda she makes the cookies, and um, there are many steps in these because you have to. Uh, chop up all sorts of different things and then you have to make several things separately and then at the end of this long process you combine it all together and it's sort of a a cookie with another cookie on the bottom and then frosting in the middle and the cookies themselves uh, are strawberry cheesecake-ish and the frosting is strawberry cheesecake-ish and we're going to see how much of this ish is going to tantalize me right now okay i have the cookie here we go Mm-hmm. 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 Mm. Grab the conch. I must alert the villagers.
2: Mm. Wow.
0: Hmm. It's it's not it's as good as cheesecake, but different. Mm. Man, oh man! So it has a kind of a sandy color, and there are bits and giblets of great things all throughout it. And it reminds me of like uh, when the metal detector first came out, like the thing that that the stick with the disc at the end of it and the wire that coils around the stick. Um, a lot of people bought those thinking that they were going to go to the beach and they were going to get rich. They were going to find doubloons and, uh, hidden treasures. Um, and, uh, maybe find some, uh, some gold, a gold watch or, um, somehow they would find some, um, some, some buried loot. But, um, no, you just found nails and, uh, an old key that fits something you don't know. Um, maybe you find, uh, a, a collection of rusted fish hooks uh surrounding an old boot but, the, but this this is like from an alternate universe where yeah you buy the metal detector and you're gonna find nothing but riches nothing but glittering uh shining um uh, uh, constellations of uh wondrous uh treasures and that's what's in this cookie treasure mm, hold on Oh man, yeah. this is this is a dessert. This is what this is. This is not um, this not something you you casually hand over to someone and say, "Oh, are you enjoying that coffee? Here, have a cookie." No, 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 no. This is serious. This is the kind of thing you go to when you're trying to forget something. This is what you go to when you're trying to cope. Oh. I don't know what to say. I want to keep describing it, but I also want to keep eating it. So let's just stop here before I go insane from how great this is. Yeah, I like it. You did a great job, Heather Clarkson. This is great. Strawberry Cheesecake Sandwich Cookie. Um, Just the name itself should clue you into how amazing they are. You're definitely going to get a signed copy of the book. And I promise you that coursing through the veins and brains of the person signing that uh, is nothing but pure unadulterated fist shaking at the sky. I found the treasure with my um uh treasure detector, my tongue and mouth. And it is wonderful. Thank you so much, Heather Clarkson. Um I love it. Let's talk about some self-delusion. I received this article from Michael Dariano on uh Twitter. He's at Mike Dariano. Um and he asked if I he said he said he thought that I may have already spoken about this. Um And I think I have, but I have, there wasn't, this article is new and this article is awesome. (laughs) It's such a, um, you, you, you will, um, you're all familiar with the idea of these, uh, these phishing scams, the pH phishing scams, the people who send you emails and say, you've won $527,000. Um, all you have to do is enter in your personal information and we'll give it right to you. Or, um, please, sir, I am trying to escape from the persecutors, and they have um, given me only 15 minutes to establish a new bank account in America. I will give you $1 million out of my $70 million, if you can just help me. And you ask yourself, who falls for this stuff? Well, scientists have researched this, and this is in the New Statesman, um, newstatesman.com. And this came out uh, twenty the 23rd of September 2014, and it's written by Emma And the title of the article is the psychology of phishing. Why do we fall for terrible email scams? And what they discovered is that these researchers was U S scientists at the university of Buffalo. They got together um, uh, more than a hundred students and they just sort of uh, threw these scams at them to see which uh, who would, and who would not um, fall for them. And they found that uh, that surprisingly enough, um, a lot of people do fall for the initial stages of the scam. A lot of people do click through that first email and go check out. What is this? Is this really real? Is this something that's meant for me? Uh, especially people between the ages of 18 and 25, they seem to be pretty susceptible to it, even if they think they're smart and wouldn't fall prey to it. But here's the thing that they, um, they discovered that makes it great. Um, A lot of those scams, the emails are written in a way that makes it seem even worse than, uh, they don't don't seem like they're really trying that hard. Uh, They might be misspelled. They might seem to have a poor grasp of English. um, They might seem uh, really obviously uh, uh, scammy. And the reason they do that is because it would be um, detrimental to the scammer's cause if they were able to get someone... Um, with that first email and then 10 emails down the road after two weeks of, of conning them toward the end, that person said, wait a second, this isn't real. So what they do is they front load their exercise with crappy emails so that they can skim off all the people who probably wouldn't fall for the scam toward the end. And they only get people who are very, very gullible in the article. They, They quote one of the researchers, uh, Cormac Harley, and the quote from the article is from Cormac says, since gullibility is unobservable, the best strategy is to get those who possess this quality to self identify. So they send out millions of these emails. And then that very tiny percentage of people who don't just click on the email because a lot of people are going to click on it, but the very tiny percentage of people who not only click on it, but who will also fall for the scam are the ones they're looking for. And that's why they make them so crappy. And that is just some of the greatest. That is so amazing. And uh, if you want to read more about it, just go to The Psychology of Phishing. Why do we fall for terrible email scams at thenewstatesman.com. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one. Head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all of the previous episodes of this podcast and find links to everything that I talked about today. You can also uh, buy both of my books. You can look at all of the merchandise that's available. Send in your cookie recipes. Send those to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I bake your cookie, I will send you a signed copy. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. Plus. On Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog. I'm at David McCraney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace, and the music bids are by Drew Garraway.
1: It seems impossible that an empty desert could hide one of the world's greatest secrets. Yet in this wasteland stands a wondrous enigma, the great pyramids of ancient Egypt. Every day,